The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC can be found online at overlandpark.cc. Welcome to OPCC. Welcome to those of you who are joining online, those of you visiting. It's good to see some new faces here this morning. I trust you've all had uh, a Merry Christmas. I had a great Christmas. I think it's one of my favorite ones. Can't recall really having a bad Christmas um, ever. And so, uh, but this one was nice. I don't know what it was. I was visiting with Peter before church. The, the kids seemed to, to get along really well this year. Maybe, that, maybe it's because we didn't drive back to Oklahoma, so there wasn't five hours in the car. So maybe that's what it was. But we had some great, uh, great food um, yesterday. I did a little bit of a different meal for the first time. I cooked a prime rib, smoked one, and I love great food. Man, you raise your hand if you love great food. Amen. Yeah. Here's the deal, though. Here's what I think I've learned. Um, a couple of things about great food. One, it tastes better if, a, if somebody else cooks it uh, because you're just tired after you cook. Um, and, and two, everything tastes better when you're hungry. I mean, the hungrier you are, the better something becomes. Um, you know, you could be out and, and open something terrible in a, in a normal experience, but if you're out hunting or hiking or something and you finally get back to even a sandwich, it just seems like it could be so uh, incredible. And so why am I talking about food? Well, uh, we, la- we learned last week, we're in Revelation. So we learned last week about the wedding supper of the Lamb. Those who are invited, blessed are those who are invited uh, to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And I didn't never know this, um, but there's a supper of God. <laughs> I've read it like, a, I don't know, probably a thousand times maybe. I don't know, probably, maybe not that many, but a lot. I've read the book of Revelation. and never did notice that there's two different suppers going on here. There's a wedding supper of, lamb, of the Lamb, and there is a supper of God. And so we're going to learn about that um, today in Revelation chapter 19. And so for those of you who are going, coming for the first time and going, man, you know, it's Christmas time, and the brothers break it into Revelation. Man, I've been in Revelation for quite some time, and I'm looking forward to getting out of Revelation. It is tough uh, preparation work, but I've learned a lot, so it's been really encouraging to me. Uh, but I, I want to share something with you. I think it's really cool. I think we got time to do it. Um, is that with it being Christmas, and you think about, man, Jesus' arrival. And so there are a lot of Old Testament prophecies about the coming of the Messiah, some of them described him as a warrior king, and that's kind of the ones that Jewish people gravitated to. Um, the, the priests would teach about those, and, and they sort of were looking for this kingly Messiah that would lead them to this place of prominence that they had experienced before, like David had led them to. And, but there were also these other prophecies about the coming of the Messiah that would, were much different. And so Prior to Jesus' arrival, which is what Christmas is all about, the birth of Christ, there's a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53, and it's called the suffering servant. Um, and I think it's good for us to read it because I, I want, it connects with what we're going to talk about today. And, and, and the reason I want to read it is because this was written hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, and it has so much detail about what the Messiah would be. 
when he came to the planet. And so I want you to hear it. And then when we get back to Revelation chapter 19, we're going to read another prophecy. The difference between the two prophecies is the first one that I'm going to read about is already fulfilled. He's already came the first time. The second prophecy, we are kind of sitting in the same seat that the Jewish people would have been sitting in, expecting the Messiah to come, but we're expecting the return of the Messiah. He's come one time, he's coming back. And so listen to how detailed and descriptive it is. And again, we have to be reminded, hundreds of years before Jesus' arrival, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and, and, held, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of the life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong." Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for transgressors. Now, hundreds of years, then it's like you look at that and you see this is the prophecy of Jesus coming in in humility, having no um, fame. He was just born a baby. He, he's raised up. Nobody knows anything about him. And ultimately, um, he dies a cruel death on the cross of Calvary. He rises from the dead. All of that is prophesied in this chapter. And so we look back historically, and we can see that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy that was made by Isaiah um, long before he was ever born. Well, when we get to Revelation chapter 19, we wonder sometimes, what will the return of Christ be like? And so we have in chapter 19, a prophecy from the apostle John who tells us very descriptively 
what it will be like when Christ returns. And there's some things for us to learn from this that I find very encouraging, very motivating, um, and very challenging for me as I live my life as a follower of Christ. And so last week we started looking into what happens um, as chapter 19 unfolds and the fall of Babylon, which represents wickedness and, and evil in the world. Um, and, and then we get to this uh, where the saints begin to rejoice and all of these hallelujahs and, and heaven bursts forth. And so now we have the arrival of the king. So at that point when things, like when judgment starts to hit heavy upon the planet and things seem to be falling apart, John says this, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse. Now what's fascinating about this is that John originally in the vision, he saw a door in heaven open and he was invited to come in. Then he has a vision as part of the vision at some point, a door in the temple is open and he's allowed to see in inside the temple. But now we see there's no door. It just says that heaven is standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and other riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on his behalf. And with these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. And the two of them were thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And the rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Merry Christmas. <laughs> and so, uh, so we have a lot going on here. There's a lot of symbology. And we look at it and we go, okay, what, what does it take away from us? There's several observations that I'm going to share with you, kind of rapid fire to put this together and what I see um, uh, the Lord showing us and teaching us for this prophecy, through this prophecy that is yet to be in the future. And they say, well, when, when do we think that's going to happen? We don't know. Jesus said, no man knows at the hour of my return. Not even the, like the, 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 only the father in heaven knows. And so this is only up to God at what time that he says um, that the age of grace will close 
and the return of Christ will happen. Jesus talked about it. We have the famous um, passage in Matthew chapter 24 called the Olivet Discourse, and it is Jesus teaching about his return when he comes. And he, a lot of the things that John is talking about and writing about here, Jesus mentions um, in the Gospel of Matthew. But as we unpack this symbology here and we see um, what is happening, the first thing that I notice about the second coming of Christ is that Jesus is faithful and true. Um, Everything else in life, apart from Jesus, is a lie that leads to ruin. The beast and the false prophet, um, the, the woman, the harlot that we learned about, is all about just stuff that is idolatry, which idolatry is when we begin to put things before God. So it's a form, if you will, of uh, humanism. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis in the story of the Tower of Babylon, which was humanism that first came out of the ground. And that's why Babylon is talked about so much in the book of Revelation is it's connecting it to where people were moving apart from God and God confuses all of that. And we get all of these world religions that exist now. And so anything that is apart from Jesus is a lie that leads to ruin. This is why Jesus described Satan as the father of liars. He is a destroyer. He is full of deceit. So anything that is apart from Jesus, anything that is anti-Jesus is anti-Christ. That's why we have so much talk about um, the antichrist in the book of Revelation is trying to get us to see when we get our eyes off of Jesus and we become anti-Jesus, it's antichrist. It is the spirit of antichrist. The spirit of antichrist, Jesus said, there will be many antichrists. And so there has been a spirit of antichrist from the time that Jesus uh, rose from the dead all the way until the time that he will return. There will always be a spirit of antichrist. The difference is that when we get to the end, there will be a very strong, delusional, powerful force. And there probably will be a leader that is empowered and people will follow in a very um, uh, deceived way. And you can see a lot of people right now Um, a lot of confusion in the world. The apostle Paul talks about this a lot. He says, um, even back in his time, he was writing, man, that people, their big mix up is that they begin to worship the creature rather than the creator. And they suppress the truth. You push down the truth. The lie rises to the top. People become idolatrous, whether it is in their pursuit of materialistic things, their pursuit of even any kind of humanistic goal. So does this mean that God is, uh, doesn't want us helping each other? No, he wants us to help each other. He wants us to help each other in the name of Christ. And when we begin helping each other in a name other than Christ, it's idolatrous. It's about, look at me, look at what I can do as a human. And even a group of humans can collectively get together and begin to work on something and leave God out of it, and it becomes idolatry. And so we look at the world and so many people, so many people are so much more passionate about saving the planet than they are understanding who God, the creator of the planet is. They suppress the truth. They become focused on the planet. Now, am I saying that, hey, we sh- is, is it anti-God or a spirit of anti-Christ to be focused on the planet? No, we're supposed to be stewards of the planet. We're supposed to care for it and take care of it, but not before we understand who God is in the first place. And that's what helps us to be good stewards of, of, 
of all that God has entrusted to us in creation. And so I just stop here and pause for a moment to say, man, Jesus is faithful and true. The rider on the white horse is faithful and true. And when we are following Jesus, we are following truth. And it's truth that won't disappoint. All of these other things that are deceptive will always disappoint, but we can bank on the fact that when we're following Jesus, he is, a, uh, he is faithful, he is true, and he is returning. And one day heaven will open up and Christ will return to the planet, just like it was prophesied that he would come the first time and he did come. It's prophesied that he will return and he will come. And as we're following him, we're following something that is faithful, someone who is faithful, someone who is true, and it will not disappoint us. Here's the second thing I noticed from this text. Jesus sees all and he judges with justice. Some translations say righteousness. One um, interpretation of the word diokosune um, is, is it means righteous. Some, it means um, all that a man was originally designed to be, but it also can mean faithful and, uh, or just. It means justice. And so in this context, it is that Jesus sees all. We say, well, how do you know he sees all? He, that's why that uses the symbology of his eyes were blazing like fire. When Jesus returns, it doesn't literally mean that his eyes are on fire. What it means is that he sees everything. And he is able, because he sees everything, he is able to judge with justice. Nothing is hidden from the Lord. Okay? Because he sees all, this allows him to judge with the justice that is necessary that all will understand is a just judgment. Now, we hear something very familiar to this in Hebrews chapter 4, okay? This is really cool how this all ties together. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is what it means when Jesus has eyes of blazing fire, is that he sees everything, okay? And so... Um, Jesus put it this way in his own words. So we hear John talking about it. We hear the writer of Hebrews talking about it. This is what Jesus said in Mark chapter 4, verse 22. For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. And so like I look at that, and there, what this is teaching is that like, like nothing can be hidden from Jesus. And I... I, that, there's something comforting to me about that. And I think if you're following Jesus, there's something comforting about that, that Jesus sees all. But if you're not following Jesus, there's something very convicting about that. It's because if you're not following Jesus, you are tempted to hide things from him. Even subconsciously, you sort of squash things down and things aren't out in the open and you push things away. And maybe you know there is a sin of rebellion of some type from God where he's asking you to do and you push it away and it causes a tremendous amount of conviction even though you don't realize it. And, and what we have to understand is, man, God knows everything. He sees everything. He knows what you're struggling with. He knows where you totally blew it. And so you ought to be living out in the open with it with him. What should you be doing with your sin right now if you're struggling in sin? 
you should be having conversations with God about it. You say, yeah, but I feel guilty. You are guilty. That's why you should be having conversations with God about it. We are all guilty of sin, okay? But when we recognize that God is a compassionate God and we go back to the first arrival of Jesus as the suffering servant, God has laid the iniquities of us all on him. And so we can talk to him about that. And I find it comforting to know that God is not going to reject me if I stumble, that he has come to be a, a friend to me, to help me in my time of need. And I, I'm, I'm encouraged to know that he sees everything. Like he can look at my heart. And so when I do get it right, he sees my heart. And when I get it wrong, he still sees my heart. This is why there's such a big contrast about the two kings, King Saul, the first Saul of Israel, and King David. They both blew it miserably, and they both were in a place of rebellion. But Saul continued in his rebellion and tried to hide things from God and, and became involved in idolatry by putting things between himself and God. But David, on the other hand, when he was confronted by the prophet Nathan over his sin of adultery, and he realizes that he's the man that's guilty, immediately goes into a place of repentance and comes out of his a place of irrationality, and God begins to move in his life and bring about healing spiritually of the brokenness that existed in him. And so Jesus sees all, but not only does he see all, because he sees all, he's able to judge with justice. And I find that comforting. Here's the third thing I observed from this text. Jesus' crown of thorns is replaced with many crowns. When he comes the first time as the suffering servant, we know they crucified him. And historically, whether you go inside the Bible or outside the Bible, like Jesus was crowned with a crown of thorns. That's why we see this imagery everywhere. But here... When he returns, that crown of thorns is uh, replaced with many crowns, it says. And so upon his arrival, what happens is he conquers and he wears all the uh, crowns of power. We looked back a couple of weeks ago and we saw that there were these descriptions of 10 kings, many crowns and probably symbolic of many of the world powers all combining together to become one power. But now Jesus, upon his return, he, the first time he came to the planet, he was crowned with the crown of thorns. What are the crown of thorns about? Why a crown of thorns? What is the curse that happened when mankind sinned in the book of Genesis? You, now the ground is cursed with thorns and thistles. By the sweat of your brow, now you will labor. And so work used to be a whole lot of fun because it used to be that we did it for enjoyment and to enjoy the productivity of it. And we didn't do it. It wasn't as, uh, and it wasn't as difficult because God designed us to be people who were creative like him. That's what the Imago Day is all about. And so we were to always create things and always be engaged in work. But now we are to do it by the sweat of our brow and the thorns and thistles of uh, 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 they, they now plague the earth. And so when we harvest fruit, we had to deal with thorns often. And, and so Jesus is crowned with the curse on his first arrival. But on his second arrival, he's crowned with many crowns. And we know that there are many crowns in the 10 kings that were um, uh, uh, talked about in the previous chapter, and they all give their authority to the one. 
And so we see all of this authority going on in the planet that is being described physically. But when Jesus arrives and his crown of thorns is replaced with many crowns, he is rightly claiming what he purchased on the cross. Okay, so what is that? Everything. Everything. You, me, believer, unbeliever, everything that is in the created order, Jesus has paid for the redemption of it all. Paul describes it and he says, even creation yearns for the return of the king, for him to come. It yearns for things to be made right. It groans for it in eager expectation of when God will make things right. The reason heaven in this second part of the vision doesn't have a door and it's standing open is because heaven is opening and Jesus's spiritual kingdom is united with the physical. You see, right now we walk by faith and not by sight. But when Jesus returns, we will see physically and spiritually because the two will be united and we will have resurrected bodies just like Jesus does. And Jesus will claim the earth for himself. And we get into the last few chapters and we see there's a new heaven, there's a new earth. Remember, Jesus said, I make all things new. He already has made things new spiritually. He will make all things new physically. And so the, the man in Christ, he says, therefore, if any man uh, be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So when we receive Christ as our personal savior, that's what we identify as Jesus teaching in, in Nicodemus or in John chapter three to Nicodemus. He says, you will be born again. You're born spiritually. You come to know Christ. You don't just know about Christ. It's not just religion. You actually know him. You are transformed spiritually spiritually into a new creation. The old deadness because of your sin, you're a dead man walking, even though you're alive physically, you're dead spiritually until you've had a spiritual birth. And that spiritual birth is purchased by the work that was done on cross at the, uh, on, by Christ on the cross of Calvary. And when you receive that work coming into your life, then you are cleansed of your sin. That's what Isaiah chapter 53 is about. And when your sin is removed, then the spirit of God indwells you and you are claimed spiritually, you've been redeemed. But you're physically broken. (laughs) Like, right? Like we all could use a little workout right now, couldn't we? Like my body aches. I get tired. My body's like, each year it just keeps breaking down a little more and more. I mean, like, you want to FaceTime somebody, when you get my age, you better hold that phone right. Or you look ridiculous. Like I looked in early, somebody FaceTimed me this morning. I looked at it, I was like, whoa, to get that thing up here, man. Look like these things right here were going all the way back here. And so, so my body is messed up, man, and it keeps breaking down more and more. And if Jesus doesn't return um, in the next, I don't know, give myself be liberal here. 35 years. <laughs> then I'm going to die. All right. But he's going to come back and things are going to be fixed in my life. If he does come back before I die, 
then things are going to be fixed in my life physically because heaven is going to open and his spiritual kingdom is going to be united with the physical kingdom. Now, this becomes very important. This is the next thing I observed from the text. It says, when he comes, he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Only he, only Jesus knows his name. Now, this is a really fascinating passage of of Scripture. Jesus chooses who to reveal his name to. So this whole talk about being spiritually born, Jesus said in the Gospel of John, you cannot come to the Father unless the Father draws you unto himself. And so Jesus, he often says, he said to his disciples, you you did not choose me, I chose you. And so each one of us, none of us, like, it wasn't like we decided, oh, I was looking at all the religions and I was like, ah, I like Christianity, I'm going to be a Christian. Okay? And so I chose Christianity. No, that's religion. And some people do that. Some people will choose Christianity as a religion. You don't know his name if you did that. You, you know his name in the sense of you know who Jesus was. You believe that he lived, but you don't actually know him and you are still dead spiritually. You have to know his name in the sense that John talks about in his gospel. He often uses the word gnosko, which is an experiential knowledge of Christ. Now, so if you... If you are a believer who has experienced a transformation in Christ, you are among the chosen. That's why the popular show now today, uh, I don't know if you've seen it. I'm a a fan, does a great job of um, giving us a a glimpse into the disciples' life, the chosen. They're, They're chosen by Jesus. Well, what's fascinating about this text is it goes on to say, after it says, He has a name written on him that only he himself knows. Well, it goes on to say that his name is the word of God. And the word used there is the logos. And John talks about the logos. He says, in the beginning was the word, the logos. And the word was with God. The logos was with God. And the logos was God. The word was God. And so now it says that his name is the word of God. And what's really cool about this is that the word teaches you who he is. But they all, it says that, or, or you also have to understand that the more, so the, this is what I'm trying to say. The more you know the word, the more you know of Jesus. But you have to know Jesus before you can know the word. That's why the foolishness of preaching is what he chose to confound the wisdom of the world. I'm teaching you right now by preaching a sermon, and God said it is the foolishness of preaching that he proclaims the good news to the lost. And so we, we and I'm not saying y'all are all lost, I'm just saying this is what it says, right? And so he proclaims, I hope you're not all lost. <laughs> and, so, and so like, so he, the word goes forth, we preach the word, and the person hears the word, It is through the power and demonstration of the Spirit that the Word, the Logos, who is Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so the preacher preaches forth, or the other believer preaches the good news of the gospel. A person hears it, they hear the truth, 
and they are set free from their sin, and now there should be a hunger inside of them for the word of God, and as they get into the word of God, the more you know of the word, the more you know of Jesus. It's just the way it works. What about the Old Testament? Jesus is all over the Old Testament. He's all over it. And the more you understand the word, the more you will know about Jesus. That's why it's so important to be in a church where there's a pastor and other pastors that are teaching the word. Because if you're not careful, you will end up in a place where the more you know of the world and nothing of the word. And then you will know nothing of Jesus. And Jesus is the only one that can really help you walk out the obedience that he's called you to. And so only he knows his name and he reveals it to whom he desires. Here's the next observation. When Jesus comes, we come with him. So I talked about if I die. It says, it says here that um, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Which, well, how can you say, it says, this is an army of heaven. Like, how do you know that's talking about you? Because it says up here that in the previous chapter that um, all those who are invited to the wedding of the lamb, this is, uh, or it's the same chapter, verse 7, for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given to her to wear. He tells one of the churches in the beginning of Revelation that if you overcome, I will give you white raiment to wear. And so this is the bride of Christ. And so all those who die in the Lord, when the Lord returns, they return with him. And so this is pretty cool to think about, is that when Jesus comes, we come with him. If we know his name, we ride in victory with him. It's why I'm always trying to teach about the power of being transformed by the Holy Spirit and making sure that you, you know him. You don't know about him. Your faith is not based on your parents' faith. Your faith is based upon what you know to be true and who Christ is. And as he transforms you, the, the scripture says you are sealed with the spirit of God. And if you are sealed with the spirit of God, you will not be marked by the number of the beast. Just like the, the beast seals his deal, the, the son of God seals his chosen. And so we often wonder, well, what does this mean? Does it mean people are going to be running around, they're going to put computer chips in you and, and tattoo your forehead and you're not going to be by? I don't believe that at all. I believe the enemy is way too deceptive for that. As like I said, when we dealt with that part of the text, who is the, the nutcase that says, yeah, tattoo me right there. Like you're not doing that, right? It's much more deceptive than that. And so we are sealed with the spirit of God when we come to know his name and we truly know him. And the word teaches us about him. And when he returns, we ride with victory with him, which is not a difficult thing for us to do because in the spiritual, we already know how to ride in the victory. We don't know how to ride in the victory physically yet because we have no control over that. But we do have rule over our own spirit. And when we follow the principles and the teachings of Christ, and the more we know of the word, the more we know of him, then right now we are riding in victory, in victory as believers. And if we die before he returns, when he returns, we will ride with him. <laughs> and what happens then? He strikes down with his word. 
So we get back to the word. It says, none of the armies of heaven are described this way. Only Jesus has a weapon. (laughs) This is is fascinating. Boy, thank you, Lord. I'm, I'm getting this one on the fly. Remember, Peter says, he picks up a sword. He says, look, here's a sword. And Jesus says, is it enough? I've always wondered about why is there only one sword? One sword is not enough to do anything. But why did he even say it is enough? Because he says, my kingdom is not of that. Maybe he was referring to there only needs to be one sword and it is the sword coming out of my mouth, the logos, the word of God. And so the armies of heaven are coming with him. The flaming sword is coming out of his mouth and he will use the flaming sword in order to bring judgment against the nations, all creation. So the word, the sword comes out of his mouth and it shows us how important the word of God is. Listen, that's why there's such an attack on the word of God today. It's just like, man, people think you're crazy if you believe the word of God is the word of God. But the reason that that, like that's, that's a form of idolatry. It is putting something before God. It's, it's, it's like, we have to understand, man, the word is so important to this whole thing of what God is doing. Because when he comes, he will judge with the very word that he's revealed to us because he is the word. And then Jesus, it says, rules with an iron scepter. What does that mean? Well, it just simply means that at his arrival, his rule is unbreakable and irresistible. Right now, his rule is resistible. You have a a free will to resist the rule of God in your life. If Christ invites you into his kingdom, he has sovereignly created this thing called free will, and you can resist his um, invitation, and you can rebel against it, and, and you can stand away from God. You can suppress the truth, and it is resistible right now because we live in the age of grace. But when heaven is opened up and the rider, Jesus, on the white horse who's faithful and true and has blazing eyes of fire and can see all and make judgments with justice, when he returns at that particular point, It will be irresistible. All will bow and all will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, all will not know him as Lord, but all will confess that he is Lord. All will know in a moment that that he is the God of the universe. He is the creator of the universe. And so at his arrival, this takes place. And when it takes place, the the next thing we learn is that Jesus alone treads the winepress of God's wrath. It says that um, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his uh, robe, we see the name is written. And so what, what do we learn? Is that Jesus came the first time as the suffering servant to bring grace. We live in the age of grace. And we can call upon the name of the Lord and we shall be saved. But at a certain time known only to God in the future, he will return to the planet to fulfill the very prophecy that we are talking about. That is the same type of prophecy about his first coming. It's just about his second coming. And when he comes, his wrath will come with him. Why is that? Because he is just and holy. Holy. 
It isn't that God desires any person to perish. It isn't that God um, relishes in this. It is that God is God. And if he is going to be God, if there is no sacrifice for sin, then it remains and it must be punished. Otherwise, logically, the whole thing falls apart. There must be consequences for sin. And your consequences are either laid on the suffering servant that was described in the first coming of Christ in Isaiah chapter 53, or they will be laid on you and I. And so we escape this, and that's what brings the joy of the Lord into our lives because we recognize my sin has been forgiven. I'm washed clean by the blood of the lamb who came and sacrificed himself for me. And when he returns, like he begins to tread the wine press of God's wrath. And so th- what this means is like they, in the ancient world, they would literally walk in a big vat. They would get in there and several people would squash the grapes to crush the juice out and make the wine and their clothes would be stained by, by all the juice. And this is saying that when Jesus returns, no one else, like not all of the apostles along with him, not the armies of heaven, not any angels, just Jesus, just Jesus alone. Okay. This kind of changes the picture of the whole little cute saying, Jesus is my homeboy, right? He treads the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God. This is kind of frightening. But not if you're chosen. You ride on a white horse back with him, right? And, and we learn that he is the king of kings and lord of lords. And what this is saying, so what, what, all this talk of this gathering of these kings of the earth and this battle and all of this, it will be over as soon as it starts. Okay? It's symbolic of, of, of all of the, the death and the separation from God that will happen. No battle is necessary. What happens is that the age of grace is closed. God the Father judges. God the Son either prosecutes or defends based upon what you believe about Jesus. And God the Holy Spirit testifies. The big idea? Those who feast on Jesus now will not be feasted on then. Like that's, that's what we do. Like we go and we share the good news. We're like, geez, man, like the more I feast on the Lord. I talked about this last week. Jesus was placed in a manger, the place for the food for all of the livestock, that the livestock would need to consume the food in order to have the energy for them to go out and produce for the humans to be able to produce food for them to stay alive. Jesus sustains all. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus said, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, you must take and eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Now, he wasn't literally saying, eat him, eat his flesh and drink his blood, but he was saying, you must feast on me. I must be the one who sustains you. And what I see here, it's better to eat than be eaten. And it says like literally there's the marriage supper of the lamb and there's the supper of God. You don't want to be on the wrong side of that. And if you're on the right side, you've got to view your life as not going and and telling people, hey man, if you don't get things right, you're going to get eaten. That's not the deal. The deal is just to go, wow. If I know his name, he chose me. 
He revealed it to me. And I've just spent my whole life, not one year has gone by celebrating Christmas. And the whole reason we have Christmas is because Jesus was prophesied about that he would come and we're celebrating this guy, Jesus. And that's a fulfilled prophecy. I just taught you from an unfulfilled prophecy. And you can bank on it just as surely as you can bank on the last one getting fulfilled. The world is moving toward it. And your entire existence is about that. The people you interact with at work, the people that live near you, the people you do life with, like they're going to the dinner party. It's just a matter of which table they're sitting at. And God would that all would come to know him. And so we are invited spiritually. We already eat at the table. That's why we take communion. And we remember what the Lord did for us. And he says, I won't do this again until I sit down with you at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so we are engaged in this process of, man, we get to spread the good news. What's the good news? Jesus has come. He's the hope of the world. And the more that people come to know him, the more people will have the right wedding raiments on and they will be dressed in white raiment and clean and their sins will be no more. It's like... For us, for us to not understand the need to be involved in sharing that, it's like having Christmas and not inviting your family. It makes no sense. Like we love Christmas, we get our family together and we come together and we play games and we eat, man, and we, we talk and we love each other. And and then, and then it's all over. And then we do it again. And that's what this thing is about. It's the family of God. We reach out and we, we bring people into that. And the family of Christ just continues to grow. And so I want to encourage you as we head into this new year, man, get a picture of your life and what it's about. Everything you do, everywhere you go, just know, man, if you know Jesus, you're going to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And no matter how bad things get for you in this physical life, spiritually, you've already been chosen, you've already been invited. And there's joy that should be coming out of you as you share the good news when the Lord provides the opportunity that he's done a work in your life. And so like, no man knows the hour when he returns, but it's gonna be a good day when he does. And so let that encourage you in the midst of your bad days now. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity it brings to our lives. We're blown away by it, Lord. Like it just fits together. It just, it just keeps getting deeper and deeper for me. And I'm just amazed by the clarity and the truth, Lord, and the, the freedom that comes into my life. The more that I understand your word, it teaches me about you. And I pray for us as a church, Lord, that we're not a church that, um, like, like, Lord, what I pray for our church is that we would be known as people who love you and love the word. <laughs> and we let the word do its work on each one of us and shape us and make us more and more like you. And that the church grows as a result of that. It's not defined by anything else, Lord, that we just 
We love you and we love the word and that causes us to love the people around us. We know it's difficult, Lord. It's difficult days we're living in. The culture is confused. And we know our job is to love them to you and to teach them the truth. Have your way in the uh, remainder of the service today, Lord, and lay your hand upon your people and encourage them. And, and Lord, thank you for giving us a special time each year where we remember your first arrival. But burn it in our hearts and our minds that that's only the beginning of the messianic story. Help us never forget, even at Christmas, that your first coming is really all about your second coming. We love you and thank you and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at overlandpark.cc.